0: I think it's a part two, although I, I don't know if they're dependent. Yes. Uh, that's unfortunate that I missed the first one. But maybe you can catch us up. Well,
1: actually, you can download the
0: other way. Yeah, but not in the next three minutes. Oh, not in the next three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Sherry Hardage, who uh, has been with the church since 2010, uh, is going to talk to us 2000. today. 2000. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was off by a decade. There was a zero in uh, it, it Will talk to us today with the second part of tribalism. Uh, so... Okay, thank you. More of your thank time. you. All right. She only has until 10 15, so plan on getting your questions in before that. Yeah.
1: Um, I wanted to uh, follow up. Can we turn it down just a little bit? I wanted to follow up on my, um, my talk about six weeks ago on modern tribalism. Um, there's, uh, of course, after I gave the talk, uh, John Stewart, who is a, quite a blunt person, came up to me immediately afterwards and said, You're wrong. <laughs> And I said, okay, (laughs) what am I wrong about? (laughs) And he said, well, you said in your talk that we we have a choice as to what tribe we want to be a part of today. And he didn't think that was true. If you are born into a tribe, you're uh, indoctrinated absolutely in that tribe, you don't have a choice to leave it and to a large extent and for an awful lot of people that's probably true but there are certainly plenty of Mormons for instance who have left probably one of the strongest tribes in this country. Um, Mormonism is a a fantastic religion in that uh, they train their people from birth to memorize the Bible and the Book of Mormon and to know all kinds of things. I had an eight-year-old school me on Mormonism one time, and he was, and he was right on. I knew he was, but it was this you know, perfectly memorized speech that he had. Um, so, so we do have a choice. It's often an extremely difficult choice to, uh, to leave the tribe that you were born in. So um, on, your, on the chairs, there's some little piece, slips of paper. Uh, if you're interested in any follow-up reading, uh, those are um, some good links and some good uh, books and uh, and things you can go to and check that out. But what I'd like to do today, since we're limited on time, we only have till 10.15, because the uh, choir, I guess, needs to come in here and start practicing. So uh, what we'll do is um, I'm going to read a little bit uh, of an article by Andrew Sullivan, and the name of the article is Can America Survive Tribalism? Um, Sullivan's uh, premise is that When our founding fathers uh, started this country, of course they knew about tribalism, but they thought that a democracy, a good strong constitution, could override those tribal tendencies. And it turns out that uh, for many years, it did more or less. Uh, We all associated with each other as Americans. But in the last 30 years, we have slowly but surely been splitting into two tribes. And there are people that would say, well, it's a white and black tribe. But it's not. It's a red and blue tribe. And the, the red tribe is in the middle of the country. The blue tribe is along the outsides. The blue tribe is concentrated in cities. And he talks about why and how that came about. So it's a very wonderful, long, 911 page article, which I'm not going to get into too much. But I do want to read you a few things. Uh, he writes... Uh, From time to time, I've wondered what it must be like to live in a truly tribal society. Watching Iraq or Syria these past few years, you get curious about how the collective mind can come so undone. What's it like to see the contours of someone's face or hear his accent or learn the town he's from and reflexively know that he is your foe? How do you live peacefully for years among fellow citizens and then find yourself suddenly engaged in the mass murder of humans who look similar to you, live around you, and believe in the same God, but whose small differences in theology mean they must be killed before they kill you? It's pretty strong stuff. In the Balkans, a long period of relative peace imposed by communism was shattered by brutal sectarian and ethnic warfare as previously intermingled citizens split into un- unreconcilable groups. The same has happened in the developed democratic society, Northern Ireland, and in one of the most successful countries in Africa, Kenya. If we look back on the history just in the 20th century, there was the Germans uh, having a white supremacist sort of... Uh, approach, and uh, and they were trying to kill Jews and uh, did their best to kill Jews and managed to, uh, quite successfully to kill a lot of them. Uh, then later, there was... Um, let me find my notes here. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Ah, okay. Then in the 1970s, there was Beirut. Beirut. In uh, the 1990s, Rwanda had a tremendous tribal war uh, with the Hutsis and the I don't know who the other people were, forget, uh, were killing each other right and left. And, you know, just looking at the faces of the people on TV and in documentaries and stuff, I couldn't tell one from the other. And yet these people knew who to kill and who not to kill, and millions were killed in just a a, a couple of weeks. It was a a tremendous disaster. And then right now in Burma, Uh, There are Muslim, the Rohingya Muslims are being ostracized, uh, raped, murdered, killed, kicked out, and everything. And there's very little um, outrage in this country about that. Um, I wonder if they were kicking out uh, Christians and treating Christians exactly that way if this country might not get uh, high and mighty about it. Uh, He says, uh, also, we don't really have to wonder what it's like to live in a tribal society anymore, do we? Because we already do. Over the past couple of decades in America, the enduring complicated divides of ideology, geography, party, class, religion, and race have mutated into something deeper, simpler to map, and therefore much more ominous. Now, that's an interesting statement. If you can map it you can see it very clearly and you can almost see it in the way people dress in the attitudes on their faces. You can almost meet somebody and say, oh, they're one of my folks. They're probably liberal. They're probably, you know, a little more accepting. And then there are people that you just meet them and you go, "Ah, they must be be, uh, conservative, especially if they have a a gun rack in their pickup truck. You pretty much know (laughs) what tribe they belong to. I don't just mean the rise of political polarization although that's how it often expresses itself nor the rise of political violence the domestic terrorism of the late sixties and seventies was far worse nor even this country's ancient black-white racial conflict though its potency endures I mean the new and compounding combination of all these differences into two coherent tribes eerily balanced in political power fighting not just to advance their own side but to provoke, condemn, and defeat each other. If uh, any of you are on Facebook on a regular basis, if you have friends who are conservative and they post conservative memes from sites like um, American Conservative and uh, Southern Deplorables, uh, you will will find a lot of these memes. So it's it's worth a look to go to those and see uh, what some of these memes are saying about liberals. And then, of course, we, uh, if you're on Facebook, you get plenty of the liberal memes, many of which are just really awful. They, they put people down, they call names, they do all the things that, as a tribe, you do to vilify those guys. It makes it easy to kill somebody that is not on your side. And that's, that's, one of, that's the downside of tribalism, is the warfare and the hatred and the killing that can result from, uh, from extreme tribalism. He says he means two tribes whose mutual incomprehension and loathing can drown out their love of country, each of whom scans current events almost entirely to see if they advance not so much the country's interests, but their own. I mean these two tribes where one contains most racial minorities and the other is disproportionately white. Where one tribe lives on the coasts and in the cities and the other is scattered across rural and exurban expanse where one tribe holds on to traditional faith and the other is increasingly contemptuous of religion altogether, where one is viscerally nationalist and the other outlook is increasingly global, where each dominates a major political party and most dangerously, where both are growing in intensity as they move farther and farther apart. So this is the tribalism we're living in today. Um, I could go on and on and read all kinds of things from him. In fact, I planned to, but I thought I would have more time. Um, I'll read one more thing of his. Tribalism, it's always worth remembering, is not one aspect of human experience. It's the default human experience. And I thought that was an incredibly powerful statement because if you really look at all the problems in the world where people are gathered together and they're angry about something, tribalism is at the bottom of that tribalism is the root of that tribalism is the forceful emotional stuff behind that they may be focused on a particular uh uh thing that they don't like but the tribalism power is what's holding them together and and i am and beginning to think as i've done more research on all this that um that tribalism and our tendency towards that is both our saving grace and the means of our total destruction because when we have a, uh, a person threatening nuclear war, like Kim Jong-un, and he has an entire country that has been brainwashed from birth to see everything outside of their little world as evil, uh, and now they have a nuclear bomb, that's pretty bad. Now, he's not stupid. He's only got a few bombs, and we have 4,000 or more. Uh, 4,000 at last report. So I don't think that he would really risk nuclear war with us, but we are his primary target. And we have a president now who is not responding in a a way that would temper that or try to get rid of that. Um, He is, uh, you know, he's matching him word for word uh, in in a tough guy thing, you know. It's scary. That's the thing that scares me. It's not Kim Jong un, but our response to it. It comes more naturally, this default human experience, than any other way of life. For the overwhelming majority of our time on this planet, the tribe was the only form of human society. We lived for tens of thousands of years in compact, largely egalitarian groups of around 50 people or more, connected to each other by genetics and language, usually unwritten." Most tribes occupied their own familiar territory with widespread sharing of food and no private property. A tribe had its own leaders and a myth of its history. It sorted out what we did every day and what we thought every hour. So that's another aspect of tribalism that is uh, frightening to me, is our founding fathers assumed that if we had real freedom from tribes, from kings, from uh, forceful government and we were running our own farm, we were running our own business, we were running our own lives and making decisions for ourselves that we would become more and more rational, we would become less and less tribal and they did not expect uh, uh, tribalism to rear its ugly head uh, of course it did rear its head during the Civil War um, and tribalism was used, this is my opinion, but I think tribalism and the power of tribalism was used by rich landowners who did have slaves because if you look at the history, most people in the South that were farmers did not have slaves. It was the wealthiest people. It was the cotton growers and the... and uh, mostly cotton and tobacco growers that had a lot of slaves. Well, they were also the richest people. They were the most influential. And uh, of course, only white men could vote. So, uh, you know, women's voice wasn't heard at all. And of course, no black people's voices were heard there. And, uh, and these uh, very wealthy people used the power of tribalism and cohesiveness. And we're all Southerners, and, and we all are fighting against this terrible government that wants to take our property away. It's property rights, it's states' rights. They made it an issue bigger than, hey, you're screwing with our economy here and you're going to bankrupt us rich people, right? It's not going to bankrupt the people that don't have slaves, it's going to bankrupt us rich people. So, what are we seeing today? We're seeing a very similar thing. We need to have tax breaks. We need to control the economy. We need to get rid of the EPA. We need to get rid of all these terrible government regulations. What a terrible thing this government is trying to take our riches away. They're trying to bankrupt us. They're trying to put us in the poorhouse. Well, we've got billionaires. There was no such thing as a billionaire until the 20th century. And now we have tons of them. And these are the same people. A lot of them are uh, are liberal, but a lot of them are not. And and for for us to be having tax breaks where we're cutting social security and health care and all kinds of social services, notice nobody ever mentions the military. The military is 40 percent of our budget. It's it's a larger budget than the next six countries combined and yet our government never talks about cutting the military in order to save social programs. That strikes me as awfully odd. That's, that's a real tribal schism there because this side, the right, wants to have a powerful force. They wanna be a big force in the world. And the liberal on the left side want to see people being more comfortable. If you're gonna to have to pay taxes, why not get something for your taxes? so i 'm not going to go on uh, you 're welcome to read this article for yourself if you 'd like. A lot of really great stuff in here. Um, he talks about how the divides started that uh, and he says you know when we when we began to educate people and send them to college, the really talented people from the middle of the United States went to went to universities and they learned and they they got a bigger idea about the world and a bigger idea about economics and a bigger idea about religion and all kinds of things and they stayed they stayed in the cities they stayed where the universities were or they went to work for companies that were in large uh, cities albuquerque right now is vying for uh, the amazon headquarters the new amazon headquarters and i just have to laugh because you know what is there in albuquerque that uh, that compares with um, you know st louis or or some big city where there's you know five or six giant fantastic universities and and lots of uh, uh, arts. Of course, there's arts here, but lots of other kinds of arts. And and this is a, you know, but Albuquerque sees itself in the running. And it would surprise me a lot if Albuquerque got it, but it wouldn't surprise me if they don't get it and if Amazon sites, well, there just aren't 5,000 really well-educated people for us to hire right away because Albuquerque has a real major problem with education. And a lot of people don't. Uh, don't read and write very well it's, it's really sad um, so anyway I'll let, you re- I'll let you read this if you'd like those, uh, those, uh, that piece of paper has all that on it and we have about um, 20 minutes that we can dis- open it for discussion I'm sure all of you have uh, had some ideas about tribalism and what you'd like to uh, do you want to take that around okay great great. yeah who, who would like to uh, talk about this
2: Well, I'm going to push my favorite idea. Um, I've been a voter long enough that I remember a time when we didn't have primaries. And my opinion of primaries is that they were induced by tribalism. Mm. I want a chance to vote for who's going to represent my tribe. And they, the presence of primaries has boosted tribalism in this land because any particular representative that has to be reelected every two years is always under the threat of if you don't. Do what my tribe says, you're going to lose the next primary.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: We'll run against a a more tribal person against you You and lose it. I think we should, the most important thing we should do is do do away with primaries. They were an interesting experiment, but they failed.
3: I guess my, my feeling about tribalism is, is, is one of the most negative and most positive things about human nature. Without the tribe in the beginning, humans wouldn't have been able to continue. And when we, we look at ourselves today, we are probably members of a whole bunch of different tribes. But the bigger the tribe, the better. When the uh, disaster hit Houston, how many people from all over the country pulled in. But that was a formal tribalism different from the ones, say, Democrats and Republicans against each other. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, you just got all these diverse tribes and we we probably each one of us belongs to thousands of them <laughs> and some are good and some are bad so if tribalism is sort of an evolutionarily improving situation what exists in our shared history that would sort of mitigate the negative and accentuate the positive, because there's a lot of things about a revolutionary past that needs to be modified for us to continue as a, in a forward-looking way. So do you know of anybody who's actually, or things that have happened where tribalism has sort of been cooled down or used in a positive way in terms of you know, globally or locally?
1: Uh, that's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> I don't want to do two of these. Um, in uh, in his article, Andrew Sullivan addresses that somewhat. Um, he talks about. Um, uh, oh, I'm losing. I lost my thought. <laughs> I have a train of thought when you were talking. Um, he he does address that issue, and uh, and I would uh, I'd read the article because I I'm drawing a blank on exactly what he said. Um, But yes, I think tribalism, you know, in the big picture of things, in the big picture of history, no culture, no civilization lasts forever. And for us to not recognize that just like our own personal bodies are going to die someday, our civilization is going to die someday. And what is left? Well, what is left is tribalism. What is left is tribes. Even if there were a serious nuclear war that didn 't destroy the entire planet, it would leave pockets of human beings around more than likely and uh, and those pockets would become tribal immediately because that 's our default position and that would be the means to our survival through a really horrible time when there's um, you know nuclear cooling or nuclear fallout or problems uh, and and of course a, a culture like that might adopt things that we think are horribly repulsive, like for instance if a baby is born deformed as a result of all the nuclear fallout, the baby's killed right away. That would be a, a, something that we would find despicable, but, at the, but in those circumstances and in that tribal ran, realm, uh, that might be their means to survival, to only <coughs> allow children who are going to be productive citizens when they grow up to live. And that, that wouldn't be the first time people made that decision. Um, I, I could see a lot of reasons why tribalism is our saving grace in sometime in the future when this civilization doesn't exist anymore. And you know, I hate to be you know a real grump or negative person, but we have over seven billion people on the planet right now. Our eight billionth person is due to be born in the next six years, and eight billion people is about seven billion people more than the planet can easily uh, support. And we support it through our technology, we support our civilization through uh, being smart, figuring out all kinds of new ways to do things. But in reality, we're using up resources like crazy. And when those resources are gone, oil has a a shelf life. There's a shelf life for all the oil that's in the ground. Once it gets used up, it doesn't get replaced. Um, our, uh, Our ability to use solar power to make uh, make electricity is uh, dependent on um, rare earth minerals and dependent on manufacturing in a fairly sophisticated level. Uh, if all that were to collapse we wouldn't be able to make solar power for very long and wind power same way. Um, all of our technology that we use is dependent on all the other technology that we have. So if certain areas of the world went under because of a nuclear war, or just just societal collapse, can happen too. Um, tribalism can rise up and cause the collapse, and then the tribalism causes a rebirth sometime later down the road. So it's it's all part of a big circle of life, of human life, and and planet life, and everything else. But um, but right now, there's a lot we can do to um, to minimize tribalism, and one of them is to. Reach out to people across the way and um, and try to get some organizations going. There's an organization called the Coffee Pot Party, and uh, and they really work hard at staying in the middle and listening to everybody and bringing in different ideas and stuff. Here, come here. You don't want the mic.
4: You have to have the mic. If you go to yourmorals.org, mm-hmm. you can take a little test. It's real quick to register and it tests five moral foundations which they think we, they theorize we have that's what they've come up with so far and us being you use uh, <clears throat> we'll come out really high on the first two moral foundations and then there's three more that conservatives have I'm really generalizing here And they say it's sort of like a stereo equalizer on these moral foundations. And on care versus harm, we come up really high, liberals. And then uh, liberals would come up really high on the fairness moral foundation. And then there's a foundation for loyalty, a hierarchy, Foundation for sanctity and a foundation for something else. Well, I just bought them out. No. <laughs> it's so. It's really interesting. To take this little test. Well, and they say uh, we need to understand conservatives in general have all those moral foundations, but sort of midline and. Some people say they understand us more than progressives understand conservatives. And that all of those foundations are important in, and have been. And we need to listen, of course, deep listening, understand where they're coming from, not demonize them. Because the U.S. is broken up into these two tribes, the conservatives and the progressives. And, if, and we're getting more and more polarized. If we don't work to overcome that polarization, it can do us in here. Mm-hmm. And there was something else I was going to say. Well, you go, your morals, dot or listen to the other tribe. I'm not nearly as radical as I was when I took that test in 2011, I was really radical at that point. <laughs> and since then, I've been keep trying to read this book, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind: Why mm-hmm. Good People Are Separated by Politics and Religion. That it's all in there. Uh, His theory, and um, I think The Righteous Mind is really gives something. Unitarians to think about because I think we would all come out, most 98% of us would come out really high on the progressive side and we're not helping with this polarization and we need to try to understand conservatives and not demonize them try to come together start using the word compromise and I think a lot of people think that Unitarians are extremely self-righteous, and I think if you look at our seven principles, it's apparent that you know these are deeds, not creeds, and that we believe these are the right things to do. and if we believe that these this is the right way to be our seven principles, what else do we believe? the people that don't follow these principles are dark and evil. Mm-hmm. We are self-righteous. And there's an eighth principle proposed that sort of talks about that a bit. And that's something that the Unitarians are starting to look at as an organization.
1: Thank you. That was great. Tyler?
0: So i intrigued by that line about um, tribalism being the default position, which to me suggests that we can go to higher levels of social organization, but if those higher levels start to fail us, then we drop back to tribalism. And So if we think, okay, well over the last 30, 40 years we've become more tribal, then the question is, you know, why did we start giving up our higher levels of understanding about democracy and compromise? Um, And I guess what I think about often is um, sort of the future shock um, theory that social change has accelerated so fast in most of our lifetimes and that humans can only deal with so much social change and we're so much more aware of the change. We're just so much more tuned into information now that that amplifies. There's the change going on and there's our awareness of the change going on and our sense that the world is changing faster than we can handle. Um, so I wonder um, how much that is playing into people pulling back from higher levels of social organization and compromise and that sort of thing. And then the other piece that I think about a lot is um, how much marketing psychology has gotten more and more sophisticated in my lifetime. Uh, So marketers have more means of manipulating us um, and more skill at doing it And so if people start to become, this is sort of my theory roughly, (laughs) that if people start to become more alarmed about um, so much changing in the world, and that includes who has more rights, who has more power, who has more voice, so forth. If they start to become more alarmed about that, and um, then they uh, have people in their midst saying, well, it's the fault of those folks over there, then the mythologies of tribalism start to really kick in and they start hunkering down into a tribe that says, you know, we're going to blame those people for how upsetting the world has now become. Um, And So to me, it feels like that's what we've kind of watched unfold is... um, and I, and I would say first first on the right, but now I think it's both sides have um, have fallen into those same sort of approaches.
1: Great. I'm glad you brought that up. Let me give this back to you. I'm glad you brought that up because um, he uh, Sullivan does talk about that exact thing, and what's interesting is he blames the GOP uh, puts the blame squarely on them, but if you look at why the GOP did the things that they did, it was in reaction to things that the progressives did. And so it's not a a blame them, they're wrong, we're wrong. It's that they took action in ways that changed our, uh, our government structure. And we were trying to take action to change the government structure by giving black people equal rights and uh, having equal rights for women, and uh, lots of things were going on at the time this happened. So one of the things that he says is, uh, uh, by 1956, nearly 40% of black voters still backed the GOP but we all know what happened next. The re-racialization of our parties began with Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in 1964. I know this even predates some people in this room. <laughs> Not me, but <laughs> um, and I certainly was just a kid then, you know. Um, when the GOP was, uh, lost almost all the black vote, it accelerated under Nixon's Southern strategy in the wake of the Civil Rights Revolution. By Reagan's re-election, the two parties began to cohere again into the Civil War pattern and had simply swapped places. The failed nomination of Robert Bork for the Supreme Court was perhaps the first moment that a hubristic, hubristic GOP nominated a figure on the far right and an increasingly vocal left upended previous norms for judicial hearings using race and gender as political weapons. So our response was to use weapons in return. Um, led most notably by Pete Wilson of California because increasingly defined by white immigration restrictionists and Hispanics moved to the Democrats. Newt Gingrich's revolutionary GOP then upped the ante, treating Bill Clinton as illegitimate from the start, launching an absurd impeachment crusade and destroying the comity that once kept Washington from complete partisan dysfunction. That's the 1990s. Abortion and gay rights further split urban and rural America. By the 2000 election, we were introduced to the red-blue map, though by then we could already recognize the two tribes it identified as they fought to a national draw. Choosing a president under those circumstances caused a constitutional crisis, one that the Supreme Court resolved at the expense of losing much of its nonpartisan, non-tribal authority. Then there were other accelerants, The arrival of talk radio in the 1980s, Fox News in the 90s, and internet news and MSNBC in the aughts. The colossal blunder of the Iraq war, which wrecked the brief national unity after 9-11, and the rise of partisan gerrymandering that allowed the GOP to win in 2016. 49% of the vote, but 55% of House seats. A recent study found that a full fifth of current districts are more convoluted than the original, contorted district that first gave us the term gerrymander in 1812. The greatest threat to a politician today, therefore, is less a candidate from the opposing party than a more ideologically extreme primary opponent, which is what John was talking about. Uh, The incentives for cross-tribal compromise have been eviscerated, and those for tribal extremism reinforced. So that's exactly what Tyler was talking about, what John was talking about.
2: Yeah. Oh. Yes, I uh, have pondered as you're talking the part you said um, about education, and I'm uh, curious about uh, where education is going on the college level because nowadays, There probably are people who will get their college education from their living room uh, with their computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, In that sense, they won't mix with other people in the same way they would on campus. Um, Do you have a comment on uh, where you think that will take us or whether there are things we might do to help resolve the problem that that might cause us?
1: Yeah, um, I I don't have a particular opinion on. (laughs) On uh, uh, internet education um, I know there's a lot of people who do it, my son included and I'm often horrified at how um, ridiculous some of his ideas are based on what he's been reading on the internet and his education um, so I don't know, I, I, I think uh, it's, it's always, because we're so we're so uh, groupish. Human beings are so groupish that um, it's it's really hard to sit in isolation and get a college education that's really worthwhile. Uh, pr- packing your brain with uh, with facts is very different from an education, and so I'm I'm personally quite um, anti uh, getting college degrees online. Um, an awful lot of uh, of good workers and people who know what they're doing and who can solve real problems are people that were taught how to solve problems in the presence of people who were solving problems. If you're just reading about it, you're not getting that hands-on experience, you're not getting a chance to ask questions of this wiser person who's been solving problems for a long time, and that sort of thing. I, I think because we're groupish, we should be in groups. We should learn in groups. Uh, even if it's just a group of two or three people, it's still better than sitting isolated in a little box somewhere and and looking on the internet. You had something. I think oh. Okay. oh, go I'm ahead. The, um, college professors under the age of 40,
0: mm-hmm. it's twenty-three to one that
4: progressive versus liberal, and that for some reason academics have become progressive and of course we think that's because they're educated and intelligent but the intelligent type conservative has gone to think tanks
1: yes and there there are still a lot of conservative universities a lot of the christian universities are very conservative okay. and there's you know I don't know that they're counting them when they're talking about how many professors are conservative or not and an awful lot of business schools are very conservative uh, because they do business and they want to have rational thinkers. And I mean, really, conservatism is about keeping things the way they used to be. And when you have capitalism, it used to be this way. Uh, people's word meant something, and you know, uh, if you if you said you were going to build a product, you built a quality product. Because if you built a crappy product, you wouldn't stay in business. Common sense, right? But. That kind of common sense is not in a lot of um, liberal arts sort of uh, universities. Um, It's not that it's not there. It's just that it's not there in that regard that there are serious consequences.
4: Disregard those values. They do, and they tend to make fun of them. And those values are something that is measured in that Mm -hmm. moral values test you can take. And the conservatives come out high on that, and Mm -hmm. we come out zilch. We're ready to tear everything up and move on and right. get better right. things. But some good things are some things are worth conserving. Right, right. We need to learn that.
1: Well, if we just look at at the EPA, okay, the Environmental Protection Agency, was started I think in the '60s. Uh, one of its major uh, incendiary. Uh, Starting points was was the river on fire in Ohio. I don't remember the name of it. So. okay, I started to say it's a weird name, Cuyahoga River, and it was on fire, and and it was just a shock to the whole world that a whole river would be on fire. And so the the EPA was started somewhat after that, or maybe even existed before, but it wasn't very powerful. It gained more and more power, and it was given more authority to go in and shut people down and stuff. Well, now, and this is really true, I know a a lot of progressives don't want to hear this, but they have so much power that they can shut down a little circuit board manufacturing plant in Podunk, Nebraska, at the drop of a hat. Because they didn't, they polluted somehow, or they they weren't, they didn't have all the proper things in place. They didn't have scrubbers. They didn't have uh, treatment for the chemicals in exactly today's standard. Oh, it was last week's standard? No, you know. So this kind of thing is what conservatives are rebelling against. They're rebelling against the EPA and lots of other government agencies having so much power and no. Guidelines for when to use it, when is it appropriate, when do you work with a company? No, they don't like to work with a company. They like to shut them down. They like to turn them off. You know, you're you're bad, and um, and that's the attitude of conservative people who are in business. And that's why there's so many business people, even though they despise Donald Trump, they're still going to vote on that side because. He's promising to drain the swamp. He's promising to get rid of people like that who are using their way huge power to, to shut down small companies and cause tremendous um, uh, financial difficulty for large existing companies, and we're out of time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>